Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez, Vice President for, for International Studies here. And I'm pleased to host the, dis the discussion today on the origins of human progress. Today's forum is part of a broad project that has been generously funded by uh, the John Templeton Foundation that we call Exploring the Role of Freedom in Human Progress. The project is co-chaired by Charles Calamaris of Columbia University, who is joining us, and by me, and it seeks to do just what its title uh, suggests. We believe that freedom plays a central role in human progress, but we wish to explore how exactly that relationship works. How do elements of freedom, both personal and economic, impact people's quality of life in observable, concrete ways? What is the relationship between various kinds of freedoms or the role that specific freedoms, freedom of speech, of assembly, and so on, have on human well-being? These are big questions that deserve serious attention uh, by scholars, and that's the purpose of this uh, project. To that end, as part of the project, we put uh, together an advisory board of prominent scholars to engage some of the world's leading and up-and-coming scholars in empirically-based academic research. Our advisory board includes Charles Calamaris, Deirdre McCluskey of the University of Illinois in Chicago, who's also joining us today, Bill Easterly at New York University, Simeon Jankoff at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and James Gortney of Florida State University. With their guidance, we've commissioned and are continuing to commission a series of papers. And earlier this year, uh, we held uh, an academic workshop on the first four papers that we commissioned. Those uh, papers include one by Christos Macridis on the relationship between religious freedom, human well-being, and the relationship of uh, religious freedom to economic freedom. Charles Calamiris and his co-authors produced another paper on institutional perceptions and their impact on financial outcomes in emerging markets. Today's discussion, however, will focus on two big picture uh, papers on the origins of human progress. And both papers ask uh, the question, how can we explain uh, the tremendous explosion in growth and prosperity of the past couple of hundred years? Deirdre McCluskey's paper emphasizes the key role of liberal ideas, ideology, and ethics. And the paper by Steve Haver, who also joins us today, and whose co-authors are Roy Ellis and, and Jordan Orio, focuses on the role of ecological factors and how, how they've conditioned social organization and subsequent uh, development, including the development of what you might call, in some countries, the institutions of freedom. These two papers really present separate accounts, but I view them uh, very much as complementary stories. Better to hear from the authors themselves, though, than from me. So let me introduce uh, the panel. And, and before I do, I'll, I'll remind all of our online viewers that, and audience that they can uh, join this conversation by submitting questions directly on the event page or on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter using the hashtag Cato events. Charles Calamaris will be leading the discussion uh, today. He, as I said, is the co-chair of this uh, project that we're, we're heading. 
He is the Henry Kaufman Professor of Financial Institutions at Columbia Business School. He is also a professor at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. He's held various, he holds various other roles as a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic uh, Research. He is very widely published. I'll just mention one of his books uh, with Steve Haber, Fragile by Design, The Political Origins of Banking Crises and Scarce Credit, which was named one of the best economic books of 2014 by the Financial Times. And recently, he was also the chief economist at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency at the Treasury Department. We will also be in a discussion with Deirdre McCluskey, who is a distinguished professor emerita of economics and history and a professor emerita of English and of communications at the University of Illinois in Chicago. She has written 20 books and some 400 academic articles on economic theory, economic history, philosophy, rhetoric, statistical theory, feminism, ethics, and the law. She taught economics for 12 years at the University of Chicago in the economics department. And she describes herself as a literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive, Episcopalian, ex-Marxist, Midwestern woman from Boston who was once a man. Her publication record is way too vast to, to, to mention, I, so I will to, to go through. So I'll just mention uh, her bourgeois era tr uh, trilogy, which includes three books by the following titles, Bourgeois Equality, Bourgeois Dignity, and Bourgeois Virtues. We will also be hearing from Steve Haber. He is the AA and Jean Welch Milligan Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences and Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's also Professor of Political Science, Professor of History, and Professor of Economics, and a Senior Fellow of the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy and Research, and a Senior Fellow of the Stanford Center for International Development. He has authored, or co-authored, or edited 10 books, and his papers have been published widely in the leading uh, scholarly journals. So please help me welcome uh, all three of our guests. Charlie, take it away. Okay, thank you very much, Ian. Uh, and I want to thank the Cato Institute and also the Templeton Foundation for supporting this project to bring us all together to talk about important things. Um, economists these days, I think, sometimes spend some time talking about unimportant things, bringing uh, methodological elephant guns to bear on mouse questions. We will not be doing that here today. And I will say I'm going to do my best to be a source of conflict and challenge and drama with these two friends of mine. But I, I have to begin with the compliment of saying I think it's pretty safe to say, and it's a bold statement, but I, I'm prepared to defend it, that no one has done more to advance the understanding over the past decades of what human progress is and how it happens than these two people. So uh, I, I, I'm just so delighted to uh, be with them and to create this conversation with all of you. So I think uh, let's start off with Deirdre. And um, you know, I, th I think one of the things that, uh, as a teacher, that I try to explain to people that if you're not, not familiar with history, comes a little bit strangely, is that the whole idea of human progress, of course, is not something 
that as a persistent possibility of, of continuing expansion of well-being is not something that people always believed was possible. And so there's a historical moment when the notion of persistent progress, uh, as we understand it now, increases in per capita income on a perpetual basis, uh, becomes possible. And of course, that's the, the Industrial Revolution. And so my question to you is thinking about this kind of revolution uh, that makes the notion of persistent progress, that it's our theme today, even possible. How do you see the, the idea of liberty as connected to that possibility? Well, you know, look, on, on, until around 1776, um, to sort of choose a symbolic date, around 1800, zero sum was the way history had been among us, among homo sapiens. Um, two or three dollars a day in modern prices was what the average person in the in the world earned, except for a few lords and priests. And then, as you say, there was this emergence in the 18th century in Northwestern Europe, starting in Holland, and then in England and Scotland. The idea of liberalism, the idea, as Adam Smith said, I always cross myself when I mention Adam Smith, of the obvious and simple system of natural liberty, as he, he expressed it. And it was a complete novelty, because it said, look, these hierarchies, which are characteristic of agricultural societies, not of hunter-gatherers, our longer history, but of, uh, of agricultural societies, aren't true. You're not just condemned to be a, a milkmaid forever, if that's what you were, or, or a duke. You can, you are, all men, he said, are, the slave owner said, are created equal. And that idea slowly undermined in, in most people's minds the idea of zero sum. Uh, at, at first, not as much as you might think. I mean, Adam Smith had no idea, I got across myself, um, of how enormous the great enrichment of the 19th and 20th century would be. He thought that maybe the highlands of Scotland could become as rich as contemporary Holland, which, you know, was $6 a day instead of $1.5 a day in the highlands. Um, so it, it, but, but it then became evident by the early 19th century that this, this, <laughs> this train was leaving the uh, um, station, or this rocket, if you want to put it that way, was um, going up. I mean, if you drive, I'm imagine I'm behind the blackboard, you know, for 200,000 years, <laughs> we went along at two or three dollars a day, and then boom, up it went. And now the average income in the world after the great enrichment, and it'll continue, is $45 a day. Countries like the United States, it's $140 a day. And that's just trans 
transformative. And along with it, and I think the explanation of it, the deep original explanation of it, is this idea of of liberalism that Cato is very interested in. Namely, that, as the English say, everyone should have a go. It's an equality of permission. Not as we often say, an equality of opportunity. That's, that's not achievable. But an equality of permission is. And boy, this whole new idea that you didn't have to do what your, what your mother or father did. And if, if, if you could steal from people, then you could get better off. But that was the only way to do it. This, this, this idea that mutually advantageous exchange could increase income by a factor of 30, 40, was just astonishing. And by the end of the 19th century, people had start, start, started to absorb this. Unfortunately, there's still an undercurrent in every society of the zero-sum ideology. Well, let, let me uh, turn to Steve, and we'll come back to force you to defend that view more, Deirdre, in a moment. I got three volumes on it. I got, <laughs> here, I have them right here. I own them. <laughs> um, so, so, Steve, you know, when I teach uh, economic development uh, at Columbia, what I begin with is a puzzle to try to get uh, my students to think, uh, which is always a challenging thing, as you know. And the puzzle I begin with is, if, you, if neoclassical economics is all you need to understand why the world is rich or poor, why are there places that stay rich? After we've had the demonstration of the great successes of uh, England and Scotland, among others, well, this should all be transportable. Technology is a recipe. Capital can move. And in fact, capital should move to where the labor is the cheapest and mm -hmm. the marginal product of capital is high because there's such a scarcity of it. So where labor is cheap and capital is scarce, capital should move, then everyone becomes equally rich. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not the way the world seems to be. There are some places in the world that seem to be perpetually uh, poor in spite of the de demonstrated example of wealth creation. So, um, so when, we, when we're thinking about this, I guess my question to do is, is in two parts. You know, how do we, how do we think about uh, that as a question? And then what's the role of liberty and another sort of cluster of key preconditions in helping us understand this contrast between some places that manage to become rich and some places that don't seem to be? Well, that's a, a, a very big question, and let me do my best to both reflect on uh, Deirdre's remarks about Adam Smith, although I won't cross myself because I'm Jewish. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, we, um, and respond to your question. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that Adam Smith wrote his book in a particular place at a particular time. And the possibilities of interpersonal exchange that he wrote about uh, are an outcome of the, in, the natural environment in which Smith was located. Mm. Um, so the, um, you know, England is, uh, or Great Britain, is, a, is an unusual place by the standards of the world. Uh, the first is it's uh, quite far north. It's above the 35th parallel 
which means it's in the temperate zone of the world, which means that uh, the soils and climates are well suited to growing, growing crops that could be stored uh, for long periods of time, particularly cereal grains and legumes. And they have a cold winter, so you can store through the, through the winter. And um, transport costs were fairly low because, of course, it's an island, but it also, Britain is just covered in rivers, streams, and lakes, uh, which reduce transport costs further still. And the terrain, by the standards of the world, is fairly flat. So again, reducing transport costs. And no one has yet mentioned the great monsoon, the great English monsoon, because one doesn't exist. Uh, England is, uh, or Great Britain, and in fact, uh, all of Western Europe is like this, uh, is one of the few regions of the world that is neither monsoonal nor affected by uh, an ENSO climate, with the El Nino system that affects the West Coast of the United States and Asia. And that meant that the natural environment was such that the way that people insured against starvation, which was the big problem in this zero-sum world. You know, now we, you know, where, do, where does food come from? Well, it comes from, Dra well, no, we don't have Dragers. It comes from Whole Foods. Uh, um, but the big concern uh, up until the 19th century was how to get enough calories on a continual basis to avoid starving to death. That is solved in Adam Smith's world through local trade. Um, your, your oat crop failed, but that's okay. Your wheat crop came in because it, it ripens at a different time. There was you know, some idiosyncratic shock to make the oats fail. But if you went 10 miles down the road, the, the, the reverse happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could trade oats for wheat. And, and so people contracted with each other. It was quite natural for farmers to start writing uh, contracts. And so Adam Smith lives in a world of contracting. Mm -hmm. And in this world of contracting, what matters is not um, whether, not the title by your name, it's whether do you have something to trade sure. uh, and can you figure out how to write the contract. That, those basic facts about Adam Smith's world were true of a few other places as well. It's true of most of Western Europe, a big chunk of Central Europe. Uh, it's true of what became the United States, at least the, the, the mid-Atlantic states in New England uh, in the United States. It's true of Japan, um, but very other, few other places in the world. Um, it's a very unusual, complex combination of factor and damage. Those places where trade had emerged as the way to solve the the fundamental problem that human beings faced, the fundamental problem of starving to death, those places developed, from, well, through most of their history, but particularly after the Columbian Exchange of the 16th century, they became very trade intense. Mm -hmm. When the shock of modernity hits, which Deirdre is referred to as, you refer to it as the Industrial Revolution, um, but it's more than the Industrial Revolution. There's a suite of new technologies beginning in the 18th century um, that combined with each other, and they're all invented in different places, 
add up to more than the sum of their parts. So uh, it's what we call modernity is the suite of both chemical and electrical and mechanical technologies, but also legal and political and financial technologies. And when they're put together, it generates this immense boom. But not every society is well positioned at the time that this technology shock of modernity hits. Not every society is well positioned to take advantage of it. The societies that prior to the shock of modernity that had already organized themselves around decentralized markets and contracting mm -hmm. are able to absorb those technologies from below, refine them, and grow amazingly rich. Other places on the planet having different kinds of natural ecologies, some of them have, and I, I don't want to spend too much time in this, some of them have been organized around solving the problem of preventing or insuring against starvation by creating a centralized mm -hmm. compulsory insurance system. China is the kind of classic example of this. Uh, others grow foods that uh, you can't store and therefore can't trade, but they ripen year round. So you, you, you insure essentially by keeping yams in the ground. Right. Uh, others insure by moving large herbivores um, uh, uh, with the seasons. All of these were viable ways of surviving. You couldn't have tried to be an Englishman in the Congo. You would have starved. Mm -hmm. But they're all not as well set up for absorbing technology. That basic, that basic sort of organization of society, of which this notion of freedom is a part, but which includes a whole range of beliefs and organizations and legal systems and distributions of power allowed some nations to, to absorb the new technologies rapidly and then to build on them one after another, while others had to engineer their absorption from the top down. This is the case with places that insured against starvation through a compulsory insurance. And some had neither a market nor a state that could engineer their absorption, and so they fell behind and stayed behind. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm going to come back to you with uh, some further qu questions about that, but let me turn back to Deidre for just a second. In this takeoff that, that you were describing, um, it's clear that uh, in the locations where it happened, liberty was, was a distinguishing feature. But how do we know it was the essential feature? There, there were a lot of other things going on uh, and we've, had, we've heard from a lot of economic historians different views about what the essential attributes were. So how do, oh, you, how do you know well, I, that, I, that liberty is so essential? I, I wrote a 500-page book asking that question. It's called uh, Bourgeois... Uh, it's, it's, it's called Bourgeois Dignity. Why Economics Can't Explain the Modern World. And I want to argue some with uh, um, Steve, I don't think he thinks that having this climatic um, and geographical um, suite is sufficient. I'm sure you don't. Because if it was, then England would have developed a thousand years earlier, <laughs> or Japan would have been 
the the country that that led into this modern world. Here we are on TV, and you know we have all this um, marvelous, as you point out, Steve, organizational changes as well as technological. But but what what it, so those cases show us that 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 there's a secret sauce some sort of secret sauce in the 18th century that then I would say continues to flavor the stew into the 19th and 20th century. And I'd claim that the secret sauce is economic liberty. And there have been other cases. China after 1978 is a case in point. Assuredly not political liberty, but economic. Mm -hmm. And then, then India, shockingly, after 1991, when, when I was a kid, which is a long time ago, we were taught, as, you, 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 as all of us of a certain age were, that India and China were hopeless. That they, after all, the, you know, those, those Chinese, their Confucian, they're not ever going to develop. And those Indians, most of them are Hindus. It's hopeless. And yet it turned out that the Confucians and the Hindus knew how to make a bargain, hadn't forgotten uh, the uh, economic circumstances of their, uh, of uh, anciently. So I, I, I think, I, I think you, you can make an awfully good case that the secret sauce is liberty. That's the essential part. Of it. Charlie, can I jump on this since we can have a. We, Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so, I don't know if there is a secret sauce. Certainly, the notion of freedom is part of what distinguishes the societies that do well. Yeah. Let me take a step back. Dear Disciple, geez, if England had this natural climate, why, didn't it, why wasn't it rich earlier? Sure. And the answer is something had to be added to the natural climate. It wasn't invented in any one place. Um, there is a combination of new legal, financial, political, electrical, mechanical, chemical technologies that all merge beginning in the 18th century, and they take off in the 19th century. Let me give you an example on how it, how it transforms things. So we think about the railroad. Sure. So essentially the British invent the railroad in the 1820s. Yeah. But in order to make, in order to take that technology yeah, yeah. and uh, apply it elsewhere, mm -hmm. you need um, to be able to mobilize capital to build the trunk lines. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to work metal in order to repair the locomotives and the cars. Sure. And you need, um, therefore, to mobilize the capital, you need a, uh, usually what you needed was a joint stock company that could sell shares and then bonds. Right. And that meant that you needed um, a way to limit the authority of the government from expropriating the railroad once you built the trellises and the bridges and the tunnels and the, and so railroad technology spreads around the planet quite 
in some places very quickly, like the United States, which quickly becomes covered in railroads. And in other places, let's say like Mexico, even though the place is really mountainous and the, the alternative to a railroad is an ox-drawn cart, sure. not a riverine barge, it spreads there very slowly. And it's because yeah. there's all of these other technologies yeah, that yeah. have to be absorbed. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to agree with each other, right? So. Part of, well, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm the, as Charlie will tell you, we wrote a book together. I'm the world's most easygoing man. <laughs> and uh, 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 and uh, we never had any, any conflicts uh, in the five years it took us to write Fragile by Design because we were uh, eating lunch most of the time. <laughs> yeah. um, Food but, is essential to you. And one of, the, one, of the th one of the necessary inputs yeah. to making this work oh. is limits on the authority and discretion of the people who govern. Well, that's for sure. Um, and so one of the key technologies, but not the only one, are technologies that limit yeah, the state. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I would claim that the historical evidence is that that limitation which we call freedom, although we, I think we have to watch out with the word freedom, because um, Marcia Sen talks of about development as freedom, and as it's very common in the way we use the word freedom in English, he mixes in these material con conditions of enrichment with the basic ability to have a go, um, to have freedom of permission. So I'd rather stick to the word, the, the, the Latin word, namely liberty. But that, that, that matter aside, I think the, the, the liberty is the secret sauce. And you can see it over and over again. I think it's essential to make a distinction between weakly necessary conditions, which are things like ports and climate, um, and sufficient conditions. I mean, take, take Singapore, which doesn't have political liberty at all. It's a tyranny. And it's right on the equator. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't got any of these climatic advantages you're talking about. And yet, because it has economic liberty, I'm going to stutter on the word liberty all the time, and it's very annoying to me. Um, it has an income per head higher than the United States. So I, I, I think, well, look, my mentor in, in graduate school was an economic historian at Harvard named Alexander Gershengorn, and he pointed out long ago that there are substitutes for any of these things. And to talk about the necessary things for economic development beyond this 
permission to have a go is to, is to, is to fall into, I think, a, um, well, it can be a central, a central, a central planning trap that you need to borrow from the Chinese to get the part of Piraeus, or they have to own it, for it to work well in Greece. You don't. There are, there are substitutes, but there's no substitute for the permission to try things out. But can, can we agree, though, that for you to have the per, in a, in a, this permission, in, this permission uh, that for it to be real, you have to also be operating under the belief that if you do have a go and you succeed, it you aren't won't be, be taken away. Yeah, right. and, and, and Which I is, agree. I think, Steve's point. That's my point, yeah. And it's, and it's certainly true. If it, in the 1930s, Bob, uh, Bob, Bob Higgs has argued that the fear of expropriation killed private investment in the United States for 10 years um, because expropriation was in the air. It mm -hmm. was happening all over the world, and and Bob says, "Ooh, people were afraid." So oh, they didn't even invest. John Maynard Keynes wrote a, a a letter about the treatment of the utilities by FDR yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. that that said, you know, nationalize them or leave them alone. Yeah, malfactors of great wealth. Stop playing un, uh, uh, you right. know, uh, uncertainty games. Yeah, yeah. with the property rights, there's which I a, thought was a really interesting thing coming from from There's a, the marvelous yeah. old New Yorker cartoon from the 1930s, which shows a bunch of swells in mm -hmm. tuxedos and evening gowns. And they're, they're saying to each other, we're going down to the Translux to hiss Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let, let me turn back so, to Steve for a minute. Yeah, or you can I, finish I, your take, thought. So, so, because I, I think we're, we're making some good progress here, right? That you can't have this sort of freedom, I, I like the term you use, the liberty of permission, yeah. right? Um, that you can't have it without ha creating a set of limits on the authority and discretion of the state. On the government. And that is a technology that is an 18th century technology. Yes. And it, what's interesting is it requires several sub-technologies. Yep. That get that come from different places in the world. So the secret ballot is Australian. It is. Um, the the idea of mass elections is actually invented in the colonial United States, mm -hmm. in the way that uh, this is before independence. In the way that uh, people will give each other proxies to represent them at the colonial assembly, mm -hmm. essentially without anybody's asking anybody's permission, they created voting. They did. Uh, Charlie, here's my proxy, go represent me. And Ian would say, oh, here's my proxy, go represent me. And you show up and you, you're essentially been elected by us sure. to tell the governor appointed by the Lord Proprietor, no, we're not going to do what you want us to do. We have other plans. And in fact, you have to leave the room, um, which they do in the 17th century. So there's a bunch of these technologies. They come from different places. They get combined. And there are other legal technologies equally important, but that interact with them. So a patent as a tradable property right emerges yeah. in Britain um, in the 1750s as um, out of British jurisprudence. Oh, no, it, it emerges in Venice, which is oh. something we ought to know. Venice invented 
patents and copyrights, this great monopolist, state monopolist, invented both of them. Yeah, but what I, the point I want to make is that it becomes a tradable property right yeah, yeah. in Britain, That's true. not as a monopoly, yeah. and it comes out of British jurisprudence where they decide, well, you, have a, you, can have, you can exercise this patent and you can, you can charge royalties on this patent, but you have to meet certain requirements. Yeah. The United, so once that happens, yeah. it can only work if you also then limit the authority and discretion of the government to not expropriate yeah. the value of the patent afterwards. I agree, but, but, but you're, you're it's what makes all the rules meaningful. Yeah, but and you're so it's not. You're making my point. You're, you're yeah, making we my are point. agreeing with each other, yeah. We're agreeing. We're in danger of agreement. We're, we're, we're in danger we're, of agreement. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we agree on this, that the secret sauce is liberalism, which is constraint on, uh, uh, on g g g government some kind of uh, representative um, government, mm -hmm. and, and in the economy, the ability to have a go. And mm -hmm. that's what Adam Smith said. He said yes. that, that uh, the, 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 the liberal plan of equality, by which he meant equality of opportunity, not of opportunity of, of permission, um, uh, uh, and, and in law, is that's what does it. And have this, and, and here's, here's my point here, here's, here's my argument, that this is deep within ideology, ideas, what your mom taught you, ethics. That doesn't mean it can't change. It did in, in, in Britain. Shakespeare's England is shockingly illiberal. Mm -hmm. It's not the Britain of our imagination. Oh, the English, English persons or English man's freedoms were not exercised in Shakespeare's time. By Jane Austen's time, they are. And so it's in that, that, that period, as I think we agree, that, mm -hmm. that the secret sauce by accident is made. It's not as if there are a bunch of chefs who say, oh, we got the secret sauce, we're going to do it. Well, so maybe here's where I think. Oh, oh yeah, I was just going to say. So, so maybe the question we should be asking Steve is, in his account, what role, if any, does ideology play, and yeah. how much does your account actually uh, help to explain, or how much does it explain outcomes uh, that you're talking about? What I, what I would say is that you know ideas. There's lots of ideas that are out in the world, and and people articulate them. Yeah, yeah. All the times, and the question is, where do they stick, and, and where do they, yeah, yeah. when they take, where does an idea take root and sprout? Yeah. And it's, I think it's, I'll start, I'll respond where I started, which is, it's not an accident yeah, yeah. that a society that was largely based on decentralized trade and markets, yeah, was a place where the idea about individual liberty yeah. could take root. Yeah, but look. Think, think about, Deirdre mentioned China before. So yeah. think about the way China is organized as a society at the same time that liberalism is emerging uh, in Britain uh, and takes root yeah. in other places. And it emerges in the United States, in some senses I'm independently. The way the society is organized is to solve a problem of Ensuring against starvation 
through a centralized state that taxes grain yeah, but look, and, redistrib and redistributes grain. I understand. You create, they create a dynastic system which goes back two millennia. Yeah, yeah. They create an immense bureaucracy to tax yeah, yeah, yeah. and move grain. It is very hard in that environment for liberalism to take root, for either to emerge in the first place or to take root once it's implanted. Think about what students are encouraged uh, in Britain, let's say in 18th century Britain, to study, mm -hmm. right? So, for example, they're literate. They're encouraged to read and question. More in Scotland than More in Scotland. So what is the Chinese educational system at this time? Well, the degree there is one is to prepare people to be to take the exam, yeah, the Mandarin exam, yeah. in order to become a government bureaucrat. Yeah, but I'm, it, I'm, I'm made very uneasy by some of your historical assumptions here. Most societies have trade. From, the, from eight, 80,000 years ago, Homo, homo uh, um, sapiens in Africa were trading. Um, China was a vibrant commercial economy. Um, now, you're right that there was a centralized grain, um, not distribution entirely, but a kind of precisely an insurance uh, hmm. scheme. I am working on a, uh, on a book right now about open fields in England in agriculture in the 13th and 14th century where I claim that it's mainly an insurance de device. And then, as you said, I think you're correct about that, the ins that insurance becomes, or self-insurance, becomes less and less necessary as the economy uh, um, adopts the, these, uh, the, these innovations. But uh, trade is ubiquitous. I'm going to say that trade is ubiquitous, and the question is trade in what? Trade in luxury goods yeah, but has been ubiquitous in human history. That's right. That's for sure. Um, what is, and all societies trade to a degree. Inside. Inside. Yeah, that's right. What is unusual yeah. about Britain, Holland, Belgium, later what you know, the, the mid-Atlantic states of the U.S., no. also true of Japan in this century, is that people were trading... <clears throat> They're making contracts around food, mm -hmm. and they're moving food distances that are not possible. I don't think so. I don't think so. Look, in the Roman Empire, the Rome, in particular, was fed from Egypt mm -hmm. and the Black Sea. And that's long-distance trade. Um, the Greek uh, Athenian empire was a commercial empire mm -hmm. with a, uh, a hundreds of year old trade in oil and wine and, and wheat in the eastern Mediterranean. So, you know, the, long, uh, the, the, the Indus Valley civilization about which we don't know too much because we haven't cracked its 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 script, its language, was trading across the Indian Ocean with uh, the uh, with, with the Persian Gulf. So I don't know. It, so we need to be careful. So you just made my point for me, and well, this is going to make Charlie happy. 
because uh, each other's points uh, you're, No, you so, agree with me. No, so, you no, no. <laughs> well, I think that you know, one of the, the good things about scholarship is it's cumulative. Yeah, it is. And people find the points at where you know, rather than yelling at each other, they yeah. find the points where oh, okay, I can take that idea and I can build on it, and we'll accumulate something. But um, yeah, that, that, yeah, that there's something that emerges that's better than anybody individually would have come up with. I agree. So it's, think it's about just like so, trade. Yeah, it's, it's like, trade. like trade. That's right. That's right. And we do yes, and the um, uh, and co-authoring when it works really, really well. Love co-authoring. A third person emerges smarter than either of the two. So I would maintain, in fact, that Fragile by Design was written by Charlie and Ina Trance because neither one of us is smart <laughs> enough to have, to have written that book. So. So the I was drugging you. That's the <laughs> <laughs> so the Mickey's. the uh, what what is what's interesting about the Greek case <clears throat> is that yes they're they're fed through trade yeah, yeah. they they're able to trade and this is true of Rome because they sit on this great lake called the Mediterranean right that's right yeah. the it reduces transport costs Not dramatically yeah the, the whole world cannot do what happens in the Eastern Mediterranean. And guess where the first round of sort of the idea of uh, democracy emerges is in Greece and in the Roman Republic. And I know Charlie's going to tell me they learned it from the Greeks. Of course. Um, and that, that they have, actually, there's a wonderful book by Josh Ober on this, um, where he shows that in ancient Greece, they are as urbanized as Holland is in the 18th century, yep. with amazingly high standards of living. Yeah. Because in some sense, they hit on this sort of combination of trade but, but, and ideas. But here's the danger, dear. Here's the uh -huh. danger. And I, it'll sound like I'm from the left. I'm not from the left or right. I'm, I'm a liberal. But I make this point. Eurocentrism is a scholarly danger. You know, when I was in uh, in high school, we read uh, 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 I forget his first name, but 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 Breasted was the history book, and it was a history of Europe coming from the Middle East mysteriously, and that was all there was in the world. Whereas, look, we don't know enough about Mayan uh, history. And we're going to learn more and more and more and more because we have cracked that code to know whether the Greek city-state system was not, in fact, characteristic of Mayan civilization. And the same is true for, for, for India. So, um, uh, um, the, uh, the um, southern India especially, which is broken up. Uh, the same was true of pre-Tokugawa Japan. Now, yeah, okay. Uh, there are centrally planned authoritarian, what we once would felt comfortable at calling hydraulic civilizations. Uh, Egypt. But, you know, early... Mesopotamia was city states. Were they, were they inventing democracy that was then taken over by an empire, which happened in the Mediterranean? 
So I, I worry about our necessary provinciality. Well, Steve, if I can interrupt this mm -hmm. just to, to try to refocus the question a bit, and this follows up on, on the, the question the way Ian put it, too. Coming back to your uh, work, Steve, I think it's important to give you a chance to talk about what things you think this evolutionary biology framework can explain and what things it can't explain. Mm -hmm. Because, so for, first of all, I'm calling it an evolutionary biology framework because, and I think I'll give you a chance to disagree with this if you want, that you're really saying that some natural habitats are conducive to a cluster of good traits developing uh, that are all part of liberty, uh, property rights, democracy, uh, that are institutional complements to human well-being and progress. And that some locations are naturally hospitable to this and some aren't. But so now having done that, I want to get you to answer two questions. So first of all, there are other big frameworks out there. Um, talk about the connection between your model's predictions and those other big frameworks that also claim to have uh, a lot explained by one particular kind of way of thinking. And then also talk a little bit about the outliers. And Deidre was pushing a little in this direction. Mm -hmm. um, what are the things, and you know, my recollection is only about half of the variation is explained mm -hmm. by the model. So mm -hmm. there's plenty of room for idiosyncratic historical explanations mm -hmm. about places that happen to be more conducive to liberty or not in understanding the timing and, and the incidence of this. And so, for example, is China an outlier in the model? Is you know, talk a little bit about what the, which examples the model can explain and what, which examples it seems not to be able to explain. Sure. Um, so there's a lot there, and let me, let me sort of go at it sort of systematically if I can. Um, I agree with you that this is an evolutionary model. It is influenced uh, by uh, reading an evolutionary biology, but I want to be very clear, it is not a biological model. This is about cultural adaptation. Right. The adaptations are non-inherit, are heritable in the sense of learning, but not a, not heritable right. in any genetic or biological sense. So the human beings are the same everywhere. Okay, just so we're clear on that. What is going to vary is the in the model is the way people solved past tense solved before the 19th century, before the invention of steamships, refrigeration, and railroads, the way they solved the problem of ensuring against scarcity. That's what varied. Mm -hmm. There were not good or bad institutions to do this. There was what worked, what had emerged, that no one had planned in any meaningful sure. definition of the word planned. People, people traded with a neighbor, people appealed to a lord, people tried one crop, people tried another. The things that did not work well faded from the environment. Mm -hmm. So the word here is that ways of organizing society varied without planning they emerged endogenously. They were all good at what they were set, they did. Yeah. 
had an Englishman tried to grow wheat in Nshenge in the Congo, which was the capital of the Kuba Kingdom, he would have starved. Yeah. Because it was too wet to grow wheat, and even if you'd gotten some to grow, it was way too hot and, and wet in order to store it. To store it. Yeah. So this would have been a bad idea. Societies organized themselves. They came up with different, um, different ways of, of dealing with the fundamental problem. All of them good. They should not be hierarchically thought. Nor are these reified concepts. You should think of them as continua. And there's basically four. There's places that did it through, through insured through trade. That's um, places like England, the US, France, most of Western Europe, but Japan as well. Yeah. There's places that ensure through centralized compulsory sharing. So China's going to be there, but Mexico is going to be there. Egypt is, is there. But, uh, but France we, is too. Um, not at the scale of those societies, anywhere near like it. Yeah. Um, remember, I said these are continua, not right. reified entities with sharp boundaries. Then there are places that ensure by, by herding large herbivores. The classic case is Mongolia, sure. but most of Central Asia looks like this, as well, incidentally, as the U.S. West, yes. northern Mexico, uh, and other places on the planet. They're, they're, they're too dry to, to, to grow crops, but you can move, you can herd herbivores that can turn grass into meat and milk. And then there are places that, what are called self-sufficient ecologies, where the best strategy for survival is to be independent. That is to grow crops that do not have a season, that, are, that you don't have to store because you leave them in the ground until you need them. Cassava being an example, yams being an example, potatoes being an, exa uh, an example, or that ripen year round. The plantain is a quintessential example. You, and these are also self-propagating. That is, these are all perennials. The way then that what emerges to sort of support the institutions and legal systems and the like and political institutions to support those are going to vary. So what we're saying is now a shock comes along, just like a climate shock, and the shock is a technology shock. And it includes the techno one of the key technologies that Deirdre and I agree about, which is this idea of liberty. That's part of the technologies. It's and it takes root in some places and can flourish precisely in what we're arguing, precisely in those places that have been already based on trade. It doesn't take root easily in places like China, where there's already a centralized entity that can, that can block it, engineer it to the degree it wants it. And it doesn't take root in places where trade is very hard, for example, like, like Central Africa. But look, let, me, let, me, let me finish. I'm going to answer Charlie's yeah. credit. Now, there are outliers. And I want to be very clear that what, what the model can predict is if you take the economic hinterland of the largest city in 1800 in the modern countries of today's world, and you ca we calculate their hinterlands based on 18th century technologies, uh, what it would, how, many, how far you could move basic, uh, a ton of basic food using the technology of the time. If you look at those hinterlands, those ecological factors explain or account for more, more correctly, account for 
about 60% of the variance in GDP today. But importantly, if you go back in time, and we do this by measuring urbanization ratios back to 1500, because we don't have GDP back, we have GDP back to 1500, but who knows where those numbers came from. But if you, what we did was we estimated urbanization ratios. What you find is they, just, they, they account for less and less of the variance, so that by today, they account for about a third of the variance, in 1800, about 10%, and by 1500, about 2%. That means that the natural environment didn't shape the outcomes today directly. Mm -hmm. They shaped it by setting, by the way societies got organized in the past. But let's be clear, to go back to George's point about Singapore, Singapore is at the equator. It's very hard to grow anything to store. Does the model explain Singapore? No. The model explains 60% of the, or accounts for 60% of the variance today. There's another 40% outside the model. So the idea that, you know, this is not a deterministic, right, framework. The idea that you explain or account for 100% of the variance violates any of my, my basic notion of, uh, of how things work in history, there's a lot of things unaccounted for, and I'll give you an example of two of them. And I think that one of them is very consistent with Deirdre's point. Mm -hmm. Botswana. Yeah. Botswana's off the regression line. It Botswana. Is. Damn right. Botswana should be way poorer yeah. than it is. Botswana, so there's a nice paper by Jamalgu Johnson Robinson on, on Botswana. So is Zimbabwe, the other case. Yeah, so, and, and. In the and, other direction. Yeah, yes, in the other direction, and yes. Way below, yes. The, way below where they should be, agreed. So we're not saying that human action doesn't matter. And the difference between the two is freedom. And what I would say is that between the. Botswana and Zimbabwe. Yes. And, and what, we're, what we're saying is not that you could not take, if you, were, if you could take the whole suite yeah. of things, of inst not just the concept of freedom, but all the things that support freedom, yeah. which includes the human capital that, you know, high, sort of um, the ability to read, write, think, contract, that is essential to freedom, and you transplanted it today you could get a high-income society. Geography okay. is not locking you in. The point is simply this. It's not easily done, More. so it doesn't happen very often. But it is possible, and Botswana is a great case of it. But, but on China, more people could read in China as a percentage of the population in 1700 than in England, more could. Furthermore, they were much better at, at calculation. They were notably superior to anyone except northern Italian uh, merchants in 1700. Furthermore, for, for centuries before 18, 1800, China was more integrated in its markets than Europe was, even England. The, the, uh, the, the, the correlations of prices across China, the efficiency of its transportation system, the 
the, the Grand Canal, for example, was the longest canal in the world, I think, ever. Um, to this day. To this day. So, look, um, China had a supplementary government-run storage system. But as I, as I mentioned, France did too. Um, and, and yet, the, the, the place where this happened was the place where the ideology, the thought, the theorizing about free societies had happened. And it's not ancient in, 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 in England and Holland. In, uh, in uh, 1382, John Ball, a defrocked uh, priest, one of the heads of the, of the, of the peasant revolt of 1381, 1381 was hanged, drawn, and quartered, not a very nice way to die, because he said, when, when Adam delved and Eve span, spun, who then was the gentleman? So there was these very illiberal societies that adopted this, this new ideology in the 18th started in the 18th century. They're the ones that succeeded, and that's true of the modern ones too. In 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 Zimbabwe, the press is not free. In Botswana, it is. And here's my point, here's my key point. Once you've got that idea that all men and and women, dear, are created equal, the rest is endogenous. The rest is intermediary. Once you have that idea, and, and it, it permeates the society, then you get But, but let, let, me, let me challenge you a little on, 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 on that. Because, you know, before you were talking about China's recent success in yes. terms of economic freedom. Surely yeah. China does not have that idea that you just described. It has it in the economy. In, in, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, yeah, the, the Uyghurs certainly are not uh, able to control their they're own not, destiny. They're not. That's because of As, that's yeah, because of that's because of another ideology, which is that uh, um, uh, Islam, a false ideology, that Islam is 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 essentially a um, a, a, a danger to the established order. Well, but, uh, look, I want to ask you both this question in a, in a general way, With, to try to put your thinking into uh, the, the, the sort of broader um, array of ideas that are already out there. And yeah. so I'm going to ask you each this um, about China. Uh, so, for example, in, in the case of our discussion of uh, economic freedom or non-economic freedom, uh, I recall, of course, you know, the great book that Eric Jones wrote, The European Miracle, yeah. about China that emphasized economic property rights in particular, yeah. lack of her her uh, the ability to transfer land in certain ways, um, lack of commercial rights. And so it sounds like uh, you're happy to associate with 
economic freedom, but without other freedoms as being yeah. sufficient no, I'm not to happy about it. No, no but to predict continuing prosperity for sure, China? I am. I want you to, well, to respond to that for Steve. Well, but, but, but it, it, you know, then you get back to Milton Friedman's notion, and I won't cross myself for Milton Friedman, although he was a, a dear colleague of mine, and Adam Smith's notion that uh, th that the one essential is the economic freedom, and then Milton said, and I think Adam Smith ex expected it, that it would lead to yeah. political freedom. It's been a big disappointment. For and me. it's been a big disappointment, although you know it keeps working. It worked in 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 Taiwan. It worked in um, in in South Korea. Um, but I, but what I want to do, and I, I'll start with Steve and come back to you, but think okay. about this question. Um, I would like you to talk, Deirdre, after uh, Steve, about what's different about your way of thinking about China, from example, for example, from Eric Jones's uh, framework. And for Steve, what I'd like you to talk about is how does your um, evolutionary survival-based ge geographic thinking, how does that we've already established it explains a little more than half of the variation. Mm -hmm. How does it line up with some of these other frameworks that focus on colonialism or mm -hmm. malaria or other kinds of geographical determinants? Okay. So let me, and I think here you're referring to so my mentor, uh, Ken Sokoloff, and, uh, I love uh, and, and his uh, co-author, Stan Eggerman, had a wrote a famous paper about land suitable for sugar versus land right. suitable for wheat. Um, there's, of course, a Jemlegu Johnson and Robinson um, who argue that it's, um, that they use, in, they instrument institutions using settler mortality, saying that, essentially saying that not, not I want to be clear here, because their, their article is very clear in a footnote. They say that they're using settler mortality as an instrument for institutions and that institutions come from things other than settler mortality, but mm -hmm. settler mortality is the key exogenous variable. There's Hall and Jones, who have a famous article about latitude. The closer you are to Europe, the, exactly. the more likely These are you develop. Exactly the ones there's I'm a whole about. range. There's uh, Easterly yeah, so and how Levine. Do we, how do we so line up you, those against so, you? So, so what, what we do is, because we have, we have measured at the hinterland level all these ecological factors, you can then put them into a machine, you use, use a machine learning technique called a random forest. And the random forest will tell you how much of these, it will essentially mimic all the interactions of all the variables. It, it allows you as a researcher to be agnostic about the functional form of the regression. And one of the things that will do is it will tell you how close the fit is, and another thing it will tell you is how much of the variance you've explained or, or is accounted for by these variables. It will also generate predicted values for every outcome variable, let's say GDP in 2014, country by country. You can, what we then do is we say, well, maybe these other theories, they have something to them. So let's sure. take the variable of interest, whether it's settler mortality or latitude or the European population share, which is, uh, Easterly Levine, or sugar versus cereals, Engerman Sokol, let's put them into the model. Let's run the random forest, and now let's generate, again, fitted values. Mm -hmm. And then see how much 
those additional variables add to our model. And you can just make a graph of it. You can do a simulation, you make a graph, and you can see whether things fall in the 45 degree line. And in fact, they do. So they're not adding a lot. So, so your model spans all of those. Yes, and, but and I want to be percent that you can't explain, they can't they explain, can't explain. But it doesn't mean, as a matter of science, it does not mean they are wrong. Right. What it means is that our model can accommodate theirs and that variables that they take as exogenous are proxies for things that are in our model that are come from first principles. And it also says that variables that are, that are endogenous in their models, like initially Levine, the European population share, which was not distributed by God, it's people chose where to go. What it says is people went, um, their decisions about where to go are predicted by our model. Okay. So it's along the path. I, I, I have a fundamental objection to using regression analysis this way. For a person of my PhD generation in economics, I was well-trained in econometrics. Um, but I wrote with Steve Ziliak in 2008, with about a quarter of a century of preparation, a book called The Cult of Statistical Significance. And the trouble with these techniques, it's true in, in, in finance and it's true in, in, in this, is that they confuse fit with importance. That's their first mistake. Then they confuse more conv conventionally correlation with cause. And if you put those two together, you have a machine for producing scholarly papers that get published in the American Economic um, Review, but you're not really understanding, I don't, I, mean, I don't mean you, I mean one is not understanding causation. Cause is not something that appears in a regression analysis. It's human minds changing their actions. <laughs> and I, I would claim, and on the basis of a good deal of evidence, some of its emulation evidence, which is what engineers use, and that makes more sense to me than regression analysis, that ideas cause things, that the idea of equality of permission is causal all over the place. It's causal, for example, I think we completely agree that ideas cause scientific progress. Mm -hmm. It's not the weather that causes scientific progress. Mm -hmm. It's individual ideas, you, me, all of us here, um, and, and artistic uh, progress in music, for example. So I, I really think that we, that we have to think of how human societies work not with the, with the forest technique, but by looking closely at the trees. So you'll be happy to know, actually, we do both in this paper. Well, that's good, too. Um, there is, we also look at the outlying cases 
yeah, yeah. That, that fall on the regression law, that, that should be canonical types. But that's and we look at their histories. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, but And that, I will agree with you. Let, let me that's, finish. That's, I, I, that's I, I, fit. And, and then we're, we're mindful of the fact that there are places off the regression line. Yeah, yeah, and now yeah. you have to ask, well, why are they off? Um, so Botswana, as mentioned before, is a really is an interesting case. And it, it says, so we want to be very clear, and I think you're trying to cast us in a light that we would not cast ourselves. We're not, we're not making a deterministic argument. Yeah. We're trying to understand why things happened the way they did. We're not trying to make an argument about what things will happen in the future. We're saying, why do we, to go back to Charlie's question, yeah, yeah. why is it you just can't take these ideas, yeah. liberty, and plonk them down, let's say, in Afghanistan? It won't work. I agree. I, but, uh, it won't yeah, work because of the existing ideas. No, it won't work. But you don't, the, the existing ideas emerged endogenously from the way did. the society was organized. Certainly did. And, and, I, and, and they don't exist independently. It's not ideas just floating around. I agree, I agree. So you're, you're, and that's the point. Tiller's points again. Yeah, well, that's the point we're trying to make. <laughs> that, that's to, that's to, look, um, um, Schopenhauer made the point that. We all carry around a bunch of ideas in our heads, and to get new ideas in, you have to somehow explode the old ideas, and this is what 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 what, what Cato is in the business of doing. I want to get to uh, audience questions and online uh, questions, and as we do, I, I want to remind our online audience that they can send in the, their their questions as we as we go. So one of you or a few of you already mentioned. Uh, their own Asimoglu and James Robinson. Of course, you two are not the first or the only people who have asked the big question about why some countries yeah. are rich and not. But uh, one of the latest um, theories or explanations comes from those two authors who call, call it the narrow corridor, yeah, yeah. where they explain their term of liberty. And I wonder, as pe people pre prepare their questions here in the audience, if uh, either one of you wanted to give a quick comment about that I do. Uh, I very do popular sure. account that is going around I did, about. I did a long review which in various obscure journals, but you can find it on my website of their last book. And I, and I came to the book with a sort of predisposition to think that it was very good and, and worthwhile and ended the book appalled because it's a 500-page statist tract. They believe that the large states of the modern world are a good thing, and that, they, that these states produce what they call liberty, which is a bizarre usage of the word, by which they mean prosperity. This confusion I meant uh, that I made that I that I mentioned before between the modern use in English, not in other languages, but in the modern use in English of the word freedom, freedom means being rich. Well, now wait a second. <laughs> Our claim, I think, ever, most of the people here and, and certainly this panel thinks that liberty makes people rich uh, or helps. It can be whether it's fifty percent of the variance or not can make people rich, whereas to call freedom uh, um, 
uh, uh, prosperity is to is to shortcut, is to is to beg the question, in the correct meaning of that phrase, often misused, and they uh, are, are 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 convinced that the government is the way forward. They 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 paint this portrait of government-less or less is the word, not without, but small government societies as chaotic and dangerous. And they love the state. And I, I get in the, again, I've been quoting a New Yorker cartoon. There's an old New Yorker cartoon from the 40s that shows this baby in a, in a high chair throwing his, his meal away. And he says, I say it's spinach, and I say to hell with it. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and, I, and I say that Ashimoglu and Robinson are spinach, and I say to hell with them. But, but, but can I just get in on this for a second? So yeah. uh, I will first confess I have not read that new book of theirs, but I do assign a lot of their academic articles, Don't. including wait, wait, including their, their story about Botswana. Yeah. And what's interesting about their story about, about Botswana is it sounds a lot like Deirdre McCloskey. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. what they say about Botswana, to explain the fact mm -hmm. that Steve also has identified, which is Botswana's an outlier yeah. in terms of his, his analysis. Yeah. And their analysis comes down to the historical peculiarities of the development of liberty and democracy in Botswana. Yeah, yeah. And in particular, they focus on things like the limits on executive power in Botswana, yeah, yeah. which comes from a particular tribal inheritance, which, which was not disrupted by colonialism because Botswana was uh, a landlocked country. That's their story, yeah. uh, which sounds pretty reasonable. Look, look they, they're, they're I, I, don't, I don't hate these people, or, or, and, I, and I certainly don't disdain them. They, because they, this last book of theirs and their other books and their, all their articles are very scholarly and very intelligent and well-written, which is unusual enough in our field. Uh, uh, but um, here, here. but, but there, there's an underlying um, enthusiasm for large governments. Maybe, you know, if, if, if they were here, maybe they would defend themselves by saying, well, look, large, large governments is what we have in the modern world. Get used to it, but I say it's spinach. Let's go to let's go to questions from the audience. If you have a question, please raise your hand and way up. Put your hand high yeah, so we can see. It. Raise your hand and wait for the uh, come up to the microphone. Actually, uh, we have two microphones in each one microphone in each aisle, and identify yourself and your affiliation. Ask your ask your question. Go ahead. Hello, my name is Cheryl Chung. I'm here representing Fulbright Canada, where I am a Killam undergraduate fellow. My question is on the point of the permission, uh, or of the equality of permission. My point is on the equality of permission because I think it is an interesting point that is unexplored. As a political philosophy student, I imagined this in two contexts. One is in an organization-less state, like a Hobbesian one, in which everyone has equal permission because there are no rules. And as such, I have permission to encroach upon your rights, to steal, right. mm -hmm. I have permission to do everything. This is not quite so desirable. The other way to imagine this is in a state with organizations, be they trade groups or governments. And there are two ways of imagining this to me. There is one way of the totalitarian state, take for example China, right. where to gain this equality of permission, people 
uh, engage in corruption. People bribe government officials yep. to be on equal playing ground with their peers for opportunities or for government grants. And the other way to conceive of this in an organization full context is in a democratic sense being that of the United States of America, for instance, mm -hmm. where to gain the permission to do things is established through the use of lobbyists um, and other kinds of, uh, I'd say, implicit means of corruption. So how would you conceive of an ideal gatekeeper who would enable this equality of permission that you describe? Thank you. Well, well, you, well I, thank you. I'll give thank a... You. A, a small answer, and then, then Steve, I'm sure, has opinions on this. In the late 19th, my answer is that the gatekeepers shouldn't have, how to express it, the, the gatekeepers should be us. We has met, met the enemy, and he is us, as, as Pogo the Possum famously said. Um, it's, it's got to be in the ideology of the people they have to believe in it, then that constrains these all kinds of institutions. It, you can't drop the institutions in. Now, the, the, in the late 19th century, a naive European visitor to Wyoming, he had just arrived there, apparently went zooming across the United States on the, uh, on the railway and then was dumped in Wyoming, and he came up to some man and said to him, in a characteristically European question, who is your master, <laughs> right? Well, the guy said, he ain't been born yet. <laughs> and that's the kind of uh, ideology that needs to grip the people. And if it, if it, if it grips it sufficiently, then these organizations can't corrupt people's morals enough to make them into serfs. But Sorry, if, that if took I can, before Steve uh, jumps in, I just want to say, what, when I was listening to your question, the thing that came to my mind was the historical experience of Brazil, yeah. which is a place where the state is too weak yeah, that's, well, to yeah. really be able to create an environment where there is uh, permission. Yeah, but but you know I'm from the government and I'm here to help. No, you. That's I, the trouble. I, no, no, no. I mean, but it, I mean, if as our, her question pointed out, if we have a, a world in which I, I don't need anybody's permission, I, we have equal permission. I have therefore I can give myself permission to steal all your stuff. That's right. Well, the world all against all. Yeah, and so that you need some entity that is going to play this role, and I think we find common ground in the following idea that people have to believe right. that is their job to constrain the entity right. That's right. that is giving the permissions and monitoring permissions. Yeah. The, it is up to the citizenry to monitor that same entity lest it become, and here I'm gonna disagree with you, the Chinese state yeah. in which there's not economic liberty there's a bunch of state-owned enterprises. Well, as she said, they're, they're, it, it's mainly through bribery that yeah. it works. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, so there's no economic liberty in, in, in well, China. Well, yeah. They, there's very little. Look, as long as they stay bribed, <laughs> there's, there, you, you can open a factory. 
Yeah, but no, it's the you. It's the who. It's the it's the person that that it's the you. If I have enough money, I can do it That's to right. pay the bribe. But if I don't have any money, well, I'm sorry, I'm out of luck, and right. that is not liberty. No, it's not. It's Let, not let's complete. go for for another question. This one is online from Carl, and he asks. What role, if any, did economics, books, pamphlets, and lectures play in promoting the bourgeois values that fostered the commercial and industrial revolution? Did economic teachings have a meaningful impact only on educated elites, or did they seep into the broader culture? And this uh, is similar to a question I was going to ask, actually, Deirdre, and uh, the difference in her account with that of uh, Joel Mokiers, who agrees with you that culture plays an important role, uh, but he seems to, to focus on, on elites. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, uh, there's he the does. question. He does. And the, the it's my, I'm, I'm misunderstood, and it's very hurtful to me, <laughs> because everyone thinks that I'm Max Weber and that it's an individual psychological change among the bourgeoisie, the middle class, the, the merchants, that caused the modern world. And I've, I said at great length that no, that's wrong. Max Weber's Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism is one of the 50 great books of the 20th century. There's no doubt about it, but it's wrong. It's not that there was a psychological change. There was a sociological change and leading on to a, a political change in Europe, in Northwestern Europe in the late, or in, in the 18th century, which started to approve of the bourgeoisie. That's the key. It's how the rest of the society views the merchants and inventors, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how, it, how, how it views them, that's what matters. And that you can document. Uh, um, in worries about the measurability of this sort of thing. But I'm telling you, you can measure it in spades redoubled and vulnerable uh, in the change in attitudes in a place like England from Shakespeare's time to Jane Austen's time. So it's, it's not... Um, it's not bourgeois values that are at stake here. It's the attitude towards, and I've, lo I've lost track of the other So his question was whether it's important to change the thinking yeah, through yeah, the, broad the elite, dissemination. The elite. Yeah. And that, that, so it's, it's my dear friend, Joel, whom I love. He's a wonderful man. He thinks it's science, and he thinks it's the Enlightenment. And both of those are wrong. And I've been trying to get Joel to understand this for a long time. Science doesn't start to really affect the economy until around 1900. And nowadays, I mean, look around. We're on a, something that comes from high science, uh, this amazing ability to film things and so forth. But that's late. Already, massively, income per, heads, per head in places like uh, 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 Britain and the United States uh, uh, and, and Belgium and northern France had, had, had gone up. And, 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 uh, uh, and I don't, don't, don't want to lose track of this. Um, let's see. I'm forgetting my other point. But it'll come up. All right. <laughs> so Steve, very briefly, I think that this question has two pieces. One is about the past and one is about now. Mm -hmm. 
So about the past, one of the things to me that is really interesting is that, uh, so there's an emerging body of literature on what it was that farmers in um, uh, early modern Europe wrote down because they're very literate. And what they're doing is they're keeping track of prices in other towns. They're keeping account books for their own farms to see if they're making money, but they're also tracking prices elsewhere because they're thinking about the market. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about, if you contrast that with China is, or Deirdre pointed out that, well, in China, they have integrated markets. Well, they only have integrated, I have a grad student's written a paper on this, I think coming out in Explorations in Economic History. So the reason that you get convergence in market prices is because it's the government that's doing it. Yeah. And in fact, but the word, I'm gonna agree with Deirdre here, the word that comes before merchants in, in China is greedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and in true. fact, they go. The government goes to tremendous lengths to repress the growth of merchant enterprises because it sees them as a threat. As a threat. Yeah. Okay, now we're in, that's the past. What were people focusing on? Account books. Yeah. Prices. That's what the average person focused on. Did they read Adam Smith? I'm going to leave that to Deirdre to, and Charlie to tell me whether they did or didn't. I suspect the account books managed, mattered more today. I think we should not underestimate the power of ideas. Yeah. And I think it's why institutions like Cato are really important. Yes. Because the way people even frame questions is informed by what they read and hear. The basic categories of thought yeah, that's right. are part of what is, it comes out of academic enterprise. Uh, and think tanks, yeah, yeah. and it shapes the way people even imagine the problems their society faces That's true. And, this, and the range of solutions. Well, so I think it's now very important. If there's an underlying belief in zero sum, we're, we're doomed. But I think we're ending on a positive note because ideas can have a bigger consequence now than uh, perhaps a few centuries ago. G given how fast this can be beamed around the planet, absolutely. I think this gentleman wants to get in here. He's okay, we have t we, we, we're really short on time, so let's go, go ahead and go to the microphone and ask your very quick question and very quick answers. Hello, so I'm Saeed Kaimapchi. I received my PhD in history from Georgetown in 2020. I couldn't find a job since then. I do odd jobs like in. Anyways, my question is like today, I haven't heard any like word about war. Like, Take off your mask, dear. Yeah, sorry. So I haven't heard anything about war today. Like I haven't heard war, even, war, yeah, the, war, war. Just even my, like I, I've listened carefully. I haven't heard like once like the war being mentioned. I totally agree with you with the ideas, the importance of ideas, and the way they organize societies and their role in progress. I saw this in my uh, academic work. I started with economic history. I moved to political thought because I realized this where you find the real root causes. But like the war, like where does this fit in this? Picture of progress. I haven't War seen. is a disaster. <laughs> I know, but like. So uh, let me. Uh, we actually take this. We actually endogenize this in uh, in our in our work, um, because you want to know who invades who successfully, and so um, one of the reasons why how you the whole modernity thing matters is because those technologies are not just used to produce stuff; they're key in the geopolitical race for dominance in the 19th and 20th century. It's not an accident that the Japanese take a look at the West and go, oh boy, we better copy them, because otherwise we're gonna wind up a colony of the United States. Yeah. And so war 
in, in, in world history is essential, and in particularly in the modern period, because you can now fight, people could fight wars on a world scale but, but, using industrial technologies. Yeah, but, but the, the, I, I deeply oppose the idea that war is a factor in progress. It's not. It's a, fa it's, it's a complete catastrophe. I, I, but I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's what people do. It's what they do, and it's, it's always bad for them. It never works out well. But the, 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 uh, uh, my friend John, uh, John uh, uh, Mueller, who's associated with, uh, with uh, Cato, points out in his la last book that, that war <coughs> has gone out of fashion, at least international war. And John is pointing to not to the material circumstances that my esteemed colleague focuses on, but ideology. I just want to add one factual response to the question, which is there's a paper by a political scientist named Eric Gartsky called The Capitalist Peace. And in okay. that paper, what he shows is that um, contracting in capital across countries, yep. in other words, capital flows, is very strongly associated with a reduced probability of armed conflict. Yeah, and that's an old point in, but it's free, not just, in free trade. Yeah. So, his, But his point is it's not just democracy and yeah. it's not just trade in goods and services. That yeah. The yeah. most powerful indication of a country that's unlikely to be belligerent is that it owns assets of other countries. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, and I think on that positive note where we can all agree that we're against war, it's a good place to end. I want to thank uh, professors Calamiris and Haber and McCluskey for joining us today. Please uh, help me in uh, thanking them for their time.